We'll start with a question. The question is, when you come to Christ and put your trust in him, is there an instantaneous change in you or a lifelong change? Do you become a new person in that moment or do you spend the rest of your life becoming a new person? How would you answer that? Instantaneous change or lifelong change? Well, according to the Bible, the answer is both. And in Paul's letter to the Colossians, we hear about both the instantaneous and the lifelong change. In chapter 1, Paul said, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In Christ, we belong to a new kingdom. A change has happened. Also, Paul tells us, once we were alienated from God, but now we are reconciled to God. In Christ, our relationship with God has changed. And we ourselves have changed. In chapter 2, Paul said, your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off in the circumcision of Christ. In other words, in his death having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God. When we come and put our faith in Christ, we ourselves are changed. We have died to our old life. We've been raised to new life. There's no doubt faith in Christ leads to instantaneous change. If you are trusting in Jesus, There is no need for anxiety about your standing with God. Through faith in Christ, your status and your standing has changed. Instantaneously and permanently. And Paul is going to tell us that instantaneous change is the beginning of lifelong change. We have no need for anxiety and we have no need for boredom or apathy or carelessness either. There is a lifetime of opportunity for us to grow into the new life we have in Christ. We could say there's a lifelong adventure ahead of us as we learn the art of living this new life. And art is a skill It's not a series of regimented steps you follow. It's not a method that you memorize. And art is a craft you develop over time. That's a helpful way to think of this new life we have in Christ. It's given to us as a gift. When we come to rely on Christ and his work on the cross. And then we begin to learn the art of actually living this new life. And in our passage this morning, Paul begins to show what is involved in this art. There's more to come in the next sections of the letter, but we begin to look at this this morning. If you're uh, using a church Bible, you'll find Colossians 3 on page 1184, or in the larger print Bibles, 1831. Colossians chapter 3, and we'll read the first 10 verses. 
Paul says to these Christians in Colossae, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. This is God's word. And it tells us the art of living our new life in Christ involves learning our new orientation and that it involves developing our new character. First in verses one to four, the art of living our new life in Christ involves learning our new orientation to Christ's rule over all. When we speak about someone's orientation, we're talking about what their life revolves around. We're talking about what they get their bearings from. Many of us will have gone orienteering at some point, probably. You have a map, you have a compass, and you have to find your way around a course. You use that map and compass to orient yourself, to get your bearings. You use the map and compass to figure out where you are and which direction you need to take. My own experiences of orienteering were not terribly successful. As far as I could tell, either my compass was always broken or my map was drawn wrong. Which probably means I didn't know how to use either of them properly. But life is a bit like orienteering. We need something that gives us our bearings and guides the direction we take. And to get a sense of where our society is at today, all we have to do is think about what comes to mind first when we hear the word orientation. Isn't it most commonly used today in connection with sexual orientation? As if our sexual inclinations are the most significant thing about us. As if they are the thing that gives us our bearings and helps us chart the best course through life. Now we'll see shortly in this passage, sexuality is significant. But it is certainly not the most significant thing. Setting our life course by our sexual inclinations is a pretty disastrous way to go. Look at the orientation God calls us to in verse 1. 
Since then, you have been raised with Christ. That has happened. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. There's the reality. This is the most significant thing. This is where we get our bearings in a crazy world. When Paul says, set your hearts on things above, he probably has in mind the people he spoke about in the previous passage. People who are obsessed with having incredible spiritual experiences. Joining in with angelic worship, having visions of heaven. Paul said those people were unspiritual. Why? Because instead of seeking after Christ himself, they were seeking spectacular experiences. But Paul doesn't want us to think that things above are not worth our attention. No, he says, of course, we must set our hearts in things above. But the way to do that is not to chase after angels. The way to set our hearts on things above is to set our hearts on the one who is above. Don't seek wild spiritual experiences. Seek to orient your life around the truth that Christ is above. He's seated in the place of highest authority at the right hand of God. So above here has less to do with geography and more to do with transcendent power. Supreme authority. We're not being told here if you travel vertically for a certain number of miles, you will find God on his throne. Nor are we being told to get our telescope out and set our minds on what it shows us. No, the point is God is supreme over all, above all. And he has appointed his son Jesus as Lord over all. Or as Paul put it earlier in this letter, Christ is the head over every power and authority. So yes, heaven is a real place and it is above every other place because the one enthroned there rules over all. Paul says to us, set your hearts on that. Not in the sense of seeking to go there to have exciting visionary experiences. No, set your hearts on the one who is there. Set your hearts on what it means that he is seated at the right hand of God. In authority over every other power in this universe. Set your hearts on the reality that your risen, exalted Savior rules over all. Seek to make that more and more the orientation of your life. Seek to get your bearings by that more and more. When you listen to the news, when you plan how you're going to spend your money, when you respond to that driver who just cut in in front of you, when you get treated unfairly at work, when that friend lets you down, 
And all of those things and more get your bearings from the reality that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Orient your view of things around that reality. Learn the art of letting that reality shape your outlook and shape your responses. What's the alternative to that? Verse 2 says the alternative is to have our minds set on earthly things. It's to have our outlook and our responses shaped by earthly things. Earthly things here are the opposite of the things above that we've just been thinking about. To have our minds set on earthly things is to get our bearings in life from something other than Christ on the throne. Maybe wealth, maybe health, maybe popularity, maybe position in our company or our career. I heard last week from a teacher who was talking to her senior school pupils about failure. And she asked her pupils, what is your definition of failure? One pupil stuck her hand up and she said, well, my parents say that failure is when someone else does better than you. How was that girl being encouraged to orient her life? She was being encouraged to get her bearings and orient her life around the idea that she can only be successful if she always comes first. That orientation will either make her utterly miserable or if she manages to keep on succeeding, her pride will make her utterly unbearable to everyone around her. That's just one example of setting our hearts on earthly things. It's orienting our life around personal performance rather than the reality of Christ on the throne. When our lives are oriented to that great reality, when we get our bearings from that great reality, we can live our lives with great freedom. We can enjoy our lives. We can do our best without the horrible, nagging fear that today we might not be good enough. When we get our bearings from the truth that our Savior rules over all, then coming second or even coming last is not going to crush us. And we can genuinely celebrate the success of others because we don't find our significance in always coming first. We belong to the one who is always first. He's in first place and so we don't have to be. We know the one who's high over all has chosen us. He's accepted us. We belong to him. He loves us. He loves us just the same whether we finish second, third, or last. He loves us just the same when our physical beauty fades. 
He loves us just the same if we never had any physical beauty to begin with. The lover of our souls is Lord of the universe. And all the treasures and glories of heaven are already stored up for us. Look at that in verse 3. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You died means you died to your old life that was ruled and directed by earthly things and the sins that go along with that. But now your life is hidden with Christ in God. What does that mean? Well, at one level it means in Christ we are eternally, unshakably secure. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever steal away the new life we have in Christ. Our eternal inheritance, our status with God is not in danger. Unlike our employment, our health, or our pension. Our new status and our eternal inheritance is not vulnerable in any way. Christ is not going to be dethroned. Neither is he going to let go his loving grip on us. Our new life in Christ is hidden, safe, and secure in him. But these glorious things we have in Christ are hidden in another way also. They're hidden in the sense that they're not currently obvious for all to see. Do you feel glorious? Do other people think of you as glorious? If they had to describe you, is that the word that would spring to mind? Possibly for some of you. But I would guess most of us don't appear glorious to others. And we don't usually feel too glorious about ourselves. And that means the most significant things about us are currently hidden. The glory of our new life in Christ is not obvious to us or to those who know us. But one day, when Christ our Lord returns to this earth to claim his people, then, verse 4 says, we will appear with him in glory. The glory that's currently hidden underneath the rough edges of our personality, underneath our disabled emotions, underneath the decaying state of our physical bodies and minds, the glory that's currently hidden behind a whole catalog of weakness, it will be brought to light. It's not our own glory that will shine through. What will be seen is the glory our Lord has given us. The glory we have because we belong to him. That's what will come to light. His glory will be seen in these once broken bodies and minds. 
As these personalities and these emotions and these bodies become gloriously whole. That is the orientation you and I need to learn. This is part of the art of living our new life in Christ. We learn to get our bearings from the reality of his present rule over all. And the reality that one day soon he will appear and we shall be like him. Doesn't that put a whole new perspective on your current situation, whatever it is? Doesn't that give us a new ability to deal with our current struggles and temptations and challenges and our current successes as well? We have to face all of those earthly things. And it's right to enjoy whatever earthly success we might have. But when we orient our lives around those things, when we try to get our bearings from those things, life is often miserable. And it is always precarious. Even success feels very fragile and very temporary. But when we learn to orient our lives around our Lord's rule over all, then life will often be joyful. And always, even in disappointment, our life will have a stability about it. Maybe not on the surface always, but deep, deep down, it will have a stability. Under all of the surface ups and downs, a life that is oriented around Christ and the throne will be a stable life. Have any of us got this new orientation nailed down? Have we sorted it? Are we masters of the art? No. But the encouraging thing is, we can make progress. We can learn this new orientation. Every morning we can come to God and we can reset our orientation. And a dozen times throughout the day, we can come and reset. Just like somebody walking in the hills who stops to pull out their map and their compass. At any point in the day, we can get out our spiritual map and compass. We can turn our mind and heart again to the Lord on his throne. We can get our bearings again. As we remember his love for us and our security in him and the future we have in him. You could even put these four verses on a little card for yourself. Keep it in your wallet, keep it in your phone case. Use it to reorient yourself throughout the day. Just pull it out, take a breath, read it slowly, and get your bearings again. In the second half of this passage, Paul says, the art of living our new life in Christ involves developing our new character. 
leaving old ways behind. In this section, Paul describes the same action in two different ways. He talks about putting certain things to death, and he talks about ridding ourselves of certain things. And it's important to remember we are not being told to do this because it will earn us new life in Christ. This is a call to develop the kind of character that fits the new life we already have in Christ. Our old life had a set of attitudes and behaviors that suited it. But those attitudes and behaviors don't suit us anymore. They're like an old set of clothes that don't fit us anymore. Back at the beginning of the book of Genesis, and we're told about the first man and woman rebelling against God. And in the aftermath of that rebellion, they became ashamed of the state they were in. Genesis tells us they made some clothes for themselves, but those clothes didn't fix their shame. They still felt the need to hide from God. And then Genesis tells us that God himself made clothes for them. God made clothes that suited them. And that helps us understand what's going on in these verses. In our sin and our rebellion against God, we clothe ourselves in certain attitudes and certain ways of life. But they just take us deeper into shame. In our attempts to find our way through life in the sinful world, we resort to sinful attitudes and sinful strategies that just make it all worse. We end up in deeper darkness and shame. What we need, Paul says, is to take off those old clothes and put on the new clothes God has for us. Next week we'll look at what it is we're to put on. These verses tell us what we're to take off. Look at the old set of clothes Paul mentions in verse 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. In the New Testament, lists are not meant to be exhaustive, whether they're lists of things to take off or things to put on. They're illustrations of the kind of things involved. And you notice that this list works backward from actions to cravings in our heart that produce those actions. So it starts with actions, sexual immorality and impurity. According to the Bible, that is anything which is outside the blueprint for sex that God gave us in Genesis chapter 2. That blueprint, according to the Bible, is one man and one woman in a lifelong covenant commitment to one another. It's not a loose arrangement. It's a definite, publicly made commitment. That is the context for sex. The Bible says all sexual activity outside of that blueprint is disobedience to God and it's destructive for those who engage in it. It's also destructive for their families. 
God's blueprint for sex is not an arbitrary thing. It is our creator's perfect wisdom for how we human beings will flourish in our relationships. As human beings in general, when we stick to our creator's blueprint for sex, we are going with the grain of how he made us to be. And as Christians, sticking to God's blueprint for sex is one way we live in fellowship with our good God. To ignore the blueprint is to act like we haven't been raised to new life in Christ. Sexual immorality is an old set of clothing that doesn't suit us anymore. And if we're tempted to think that maybe this is just unreasonable today in our society, if we're tempted to think that, I can assure you these Colossians, the people Paul is writing to, they lived in a society that was at least as sexually immoral as ours, if not even more so. But Paul doesn't blink are telling these Colossians to leave those ways behind them. Just because certain sins are normal in our society doesn't mean they ought to be normal for those who belong to Christ. And then Paul lists the cravings of our hearts that lead us to sexual immorality and impurity. Lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Greed is actually the root of sexual immorality. Grasping after gratification. But greed manifests itself in plenty of other ways as well. Some of them very respectable. Even respectable in the church sometimes. A craving for more and more stuff. More and more success. More and more comfort. More and more likes. Why does Paul call that idolatry? Well, he calls it idolatry because what we are greedy for is what we live for. What we're greedy for is what gets us out of bed in the morning. And if what we live for and get out of bed for is not God himself, then it's an idol we're living for. A false God. We're pursuing something which is not God as if it will provide the satisfaction only God can provide. That is idolatry. And Paul reminds us in verse 6 that stuff is deadly serious. It's why the wrath of God is coming. It dishonors God and ultimately it destroys humanity. And so if we belong to God through faith in Christ, then we will be committed to the lifelong battle of putting idolatry to death in our lives. Taking it off like the old set of clothes it is. A set of old clothes that doesn't suit us anymore. You'll notice in verse 8, Paul gives another list. 
You must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. We live in an angry world. Everywhere we look, there's anger. And of course, not all anger is wrong. We ought to be angry about certain things. We get angry when we are against something. That is what anger is at the most basic level. We're against something. And there are things in the world we ought to be against. We've just heard about God's anger in verse 6, his wrath. God is against evil and injustice. And that's good. The problem is, if we're honest, I think, much of our anger is not a reaction to genuine evil and injustice. Much of our anger is a reaction to things not going our way. We are strongly against not getting our own way. That is why we rage. That's why we dream about others getting brought down. The word for that is malice. That's why we defame other people's character and what we say about them. That's slander. That's why we pour out filthy language and lie to each other. I've had some fellow motorists who managed to cram rage, malice, slander, filthy language and lies into just a couple of sentences which they shared with me through the open window of their car. That seems normal in our world. It's happened to all of us. It might be normal in our world, but it does not suit us as men and women who belong to Christ. We could say part of taking off our old clothes and putting on our new clothes is learning to get angry in the right way. Learning to be angry about what God is angry about instead of being angry because we haven't got our own way. Being angry the way God is angry would cure our rage, malice, slander, filthy language and lying. Why? Because God's anger doesn't involve any of that. His anger is directed to putting evil and injustice right. Not adding more evil and injustice to the mix. And actually all of this is about being renewed in the image of our God. It's about beginning to display the character of our God in our lives. Look at that in verse 10. You've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. God's character is holy and glorious. And we were created to reflect God's character in God's world. That's what Adam and Eve were commissioned to do way back at the very beginning. They were to bear his image in his world. And although that commission went largely unfulfilled at the time, 
although it's gone largely unfulfilled ever since, here Paul says the fact that we have new life in Christ, that means reflecting God's character is a process that actually is already underway in us. We are being renewed in knowledge in the image of our creator. In other words, we are learning what God's will is. And as we learn to love his will and seek to do his will, we will display more of his character in our lives. As we said next week, we'll hear about the new clothes we're to put on. Here, we're told about the old clothes we're to take off. Ungodly attitudes of the heart and ungodly actions. So where do we start with all of this? Well, we probably know our own particular weak points. They will be different for all of us. They might not all have been listed here in this passage, but we can probably figure them out. The particular set of old clothes that we personally need to take off. It's a worthwhile exercise to take some time and consider what those old clothes are. It may also be worthwhile asking a trusted friend to help you. Gently but honestly. Sometimes you or I can be wearing a pretty prominent item of old clothing and we're either not being honest with ourselves about it or we genuinely can't see it. We do have blind spots about our sin. For example, sometimes other people can see anger or greed in us that we've been missing or ignoring. So that's one aspect of putting off our old clothes. We can be honest about what those old clothes are. But where do we find the hope in this? Where do we find the motivation for this? Where do we find the hope to keep going with this when we've had a day or a week or a month of reflecting very little of our God's good character? What do we do in those situations? We come back to verses 1 to 4. We set our hearts once again on things above. We stop yet again in the midst of our failure and our waywardness. We stop and we reorient ourselves to reality. We have been raised with Christ. We have new life in him. Our destiny is to be with him. And in the meantime, he is with us. The one who rules over all is our friend and our brother. The one who perfectly displays the image of our Father in heaven, he will help us begin to take on the character of our Father. Little by little, but he will help us until finally we appear with him in glory. So let's take heart, let's 
reorient ourselves today and as many times through the day as we need to. And our next song helps us to put all of this into words. It helps us respond to what we've heard in a prayer to God, really. The song is, I belong to the Lord. Let's sing this to him and to one another. And now may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Amen.